0: Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry
1: experience in the music and sports business.
0: Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm good. And also Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? It's going very well, thank you, Andrew. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Today we also have a co-host who's a guest co-host uh this is the first time we've done this yeah our guest co-host today is mark Irwin. how's it going mark good sir how are you doing i'm good mark is not in indiana he's in california so he's uh much cooler than the three of us <laughs> mark is the vp of business development for mad cave studios he's a graduate of joe Kubert school I, I did i say that right yes you did Okay. He's been art director for Heavy Metal Magazine, Wildstorm Consumer Products, and Upper Deck. He was also the executive editor at Insight Comics and an editorial director at IDW Publishing. He's a true comic book rock and roller. Mark has written and or edited books about the Beatles, David Bowie, Rush, and more. Over his career, his illustrious career, I should say, 25 plus years, Mark is also known for his artwork on comics such as Spider-Man, the X-Men, Justice League, Green Lantern, Batman, Superman, Star Wars, and Aliens. So welcome, Mark, to the Music Buzz Podcast, and thanks for joining us today as a co-host. Thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's, uh, truly an honor. Yeah, well, we're glad you're here. And so our, our special guest, uh, today is, um, is Hugh, the one and only Hugh Syme. So we got to talking about, we talked to, you know, band members and people in the industry all the time and kind of get their their backstory and their history and they share a lot of great stories with us. And we started talking recently, I think we were out at dinner one night and said, hey, we need to do more uh, where we talk about our backstories and our careers a little bit more. So. We're featuring Hugh this time, and Hugh's also worked with Mark on some uh, Rush-related projects, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, so our guest today is the one and only legendary Hugh Syme. Hugh is a five-time Canadian Juno award-winning graphic artist and is a member of Premier Artist Collection. He now makes his home in Indiana, as the listeners know. Uh, He's best known for his amazing artwork and cover concepts for many bands for the past 40 plus years, Uh, world famous musicians and bands, including Rush, Dream Theater, Celine Dion, Kiss, The Allman Brothers, Styx, Graham Nash, Aerosmith, Earth, Wind & Fire, Whitesnake, Bon Jovi, Tesla, Def Leppard, Iron Maiden, Megadeth, Coverdale Page, and many, many more. Um, he's also been commissioned for work in corporate world as well for all kinds of different uh, clients Coca-Cola, Disney, Verizon Wireless, among others um, And he's a musician And a lot of people don't know this And we get into it a lot on the podcast when things come up But uh, he played keyboards on five albums by the Ian Thomas Band from Canada And has also played on albums by Tiles and played on four Rush records as well. A lot of people don't know, but that's Hugh that you hear at the beginning of the world-famous 2112 Overture from Rush's album, right. 2112. So today, we're going to dig into the 40-year history of various record covers um, from Hugh's career. And so this is going to be super cool. And uh, we're really excited to to talk through some of these. And we're going to kick it off. We're going to talk about 2022 being an anniversary year for White Snake's famous 1987 album, Kiss's Revenge album, uh, Rush Signals, um, amongst others. So without further ado, I'm going to kick it over to Dane. And we're going to talk to Hugh today about uh, some of his uh, most
2: well-known works.
1: Thanks, Andy. Yeah. Yeah, Hugh. I'll tell you what. Normally, uh, the three of us, when we're we, our banter on here is kind of poking at each other and, and, and poking fun. And today I'm going to refrain from that, at least for the first five minutes or so. <laughs> but no, seriously, man, I'm proud and humbled, as I know Andy is, to do this podcast in honor of your incredible output of iconic album artwork over the last, I don't know, 45 years or so. The number of classic covers for classic artists is kind of overwhelming, actually. And the fact that you are morphing into a hillbilly Hoosier like Andy and myself is all the more reason to celebrate. <laughs> but in all seriousness, you're the one, one of the most talented and nicest guys I've ever met and hung out with. And I'm looking forward to some Thanks. musical collaborations in the near future. And I'm happy to be your friend and co-host here at Music Buzz. Thanks. So. That's just my opening thing. And, and Mark, uh, comic book art warrior, such killer stuff, man. I kind of look at it, all that stuff. While well, you talk about detail, you're as detailed as this guy. I didn't think <laughs> that was possible. Can we start with the Art of Rush book that you guys collaborated on? Tell us about it.
2: As I acknowledge in the front of the book, I, I dedicate the book to my three sons, S-U-N-S, because my three daughters you know, eventually went to a, a concert with me to see Rush. It's kind of an obligatory attendance, you know, so probably not someone that they would have chosen to go see, but they were very impressed with the show. Um, but at halftime, um, Getty usually sort of apologizes for being over 50 and and admits to needing a 15 minute break. So we went and hung out, you know, and the girls noticed how much artwork was walking around in the form of t-shirts and so on. And, that sort of surprised them to the point where they badgered me. And I, I sincerely mean badgered me. I got a text from each of them almost daily for about a six month period saying, how is the book coming? Because they had suggested at that mm. to do a book. That just seemed like an overwhelming task. And at that point, Rush hadn't retired. I thought, no, I'll, I'll wait until that happens. Well, that came up faster than I expected. It was probably within a couple of years of of them making the recommendation. So, I embarked on that task of unearthing, resurrecting, unarchiving all of that artwork, some of which was very analog, um, some of which which needed repair because it had been in storage. But once I was um, talking to you know the band and the inner sanctum of the Rush machine that we were going to do this book, Neil at the time suggested Matt Scannell would be a perfect person to do an interview with he and I, and I flew down and Met with Neil in his infamous Bubba's Cave, which was populated with the most extraordinary cars and the rarest of scotches. It was a lovely day. And Matt navigated us through the memory lane of, of all the covers. And we talked for about four hours just about our history in, in developing album covers. But Matt also spoke highly of uh, Stephen Humphreys. And that's where the uh, where the text for the book came from, because Steve. Stephen was really good at digging and and finding information that I, I might have otherwise not remembered. So that was a good process. I remember the first time I looked at the book because
0: when I started to work with you, it was soon after you did the gallery thing here in Indianapolis. And yeah. I knew the book was going to be cool and I took it home because it was just a big, thick book and I'm a Rush fan. But I was honestly, it was much cooler than I thought it was going to be. I mean, the Rush covers have, have been. Amazing over the years, and I, 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 th- it's one of those bands where you think of the band, you also think of the artwork, kind of like yes, sure. kind of you know those kind of things.
1: Pink Floyd, but yeah. that
0: book, man, I think the the attention to detail in it is ridiculous. <laughs> and I'd like to kick it over to Mark and say because Mark was involved in the second, I, I guess I know it wasn't called the second edition; it was really a new book, if you will. Yeah. can you talk a little bit about that, Mark? I mean, you're a guy that comes from that world and, and puts books together and helps them get. You know, put together and distributed. Talk about what you saw in art of rush and and kind of how you ended up being involved in helping Hugh to relaunch the book the second time
3: having worked with Hugh uh, previously to this book uh, i I was prepared for ridiculousness and ready for it. Hugh and I had many discussions of uh, of the ridiculousness, uh, mainly because what people may or may not understand about the printing of this book is how incredibly intensive and expensive it is to print a book of this type not just from a page count or size size uh, wise but uh the care taken with each page i mean like literally every page in this book is almost a custom page unto itself Mm, sure because of that that time and that care um obviously there's some expense uh, driven behind it. That being said.
2: That was very gently put. What Mark's trying to say is there was no profit margin. <laughs> <laughs> Cost an arm and a leg. Well, okay. I was going to say,
0: if, if you could see the whole of Hugh's new house, you can see the wall and door behind him. But the rest of the house is actually made out of, out of the books. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <That's right. laughs> yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, it's really I fascinating. Mean, um, <laughs> you know, from from my standpoint, being able to showcase all the beautiful things that Hugh did for Moving Pictures, 40th anniversary, really just being able to participate in any small bit of such an illustrious and amazing career, especially from my standpoint. Yes, he, as Hugh you know, mentioned earlier, I am a Rush fan. You know, I, I've worked on other books with Rush and certainly is like a dream come true for me to be able to participate in it. In these projects, but even more so from one artist to another, being able to uh, even have a small hand in showcasing, really, frankly, how great Hugh is. Rush fans get it, you know? <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, man. Thank you. Along, I know
0: you mentioned some other Rush books that you've worked on, Mark. What are the other Rush books that you've worked on?
3: Well, I did the graphic novel adaptation of Clockwork Lives, um, which uh, was part of a trilogy that Neil was co author on. And uh, Hugh actually did the cover for that. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was one of the first, if not only, graphic novel covers he's ever done. It hmm. is cool. That was super fun. Um, I also worked on uh, a book called Rush Gigs that just came out recently. Mm-hmm. Also did uh, Rush Wandering the Face of the Earth, which is sort of the Bible for Rush fans, You know, mm-hmm. kind of a, a blow by blow of their entire um, live career. So nice. I've been lucky to work on those projects and i've seen firsthand uh how their management feels uh, about each project that they entrust outsiders you know for lack of a better term to work on and the fact that they've entrusted me with that uh in, in addition to the fact that i've gotten to work with you along the way has really just been a blessing sure they're one of the few bands that really seems to get it in terms of art and craft and care with their merchandise beyond the albums.
1: Well, my question is originally, did they contact you or did you contact them? How did it all come about?
3: The first project I did was the Rush Wandering the Face of the Earth book, and I contacted them. I was in the process of trying to do a series of art books, a series of coffee table books with famous rock artists. And my my original pitch to rush was to do a basically uh, everything you wanted to know about moving pictures with the idea that um, we had just done a Metallica book called "Back to the Front" that was literally about every aspect of Master of Puppets from start to finish hmm. from the formation of the ideas of the songs all the way through the recording all the way through the touring of that album. And I wanted to do the same thing for moving pictures, And I approached Rush with a proposal for that. They came back to me and said, um, there was no way that was going to happen at that, at that time. But they had this book of lists that they called it that mm-hmm. had been written by a couple of fans. That was basically this summation of their entire uh, live career. Mm-hmm. And they w- were curious to see if I was interested in that. And we took a look at it really edited the crap out of it for about two and a half years. That book could have been a thousand pages um, wow. and it was 500 pages. So
2: <laughs> I remember st- initially talking to skip and he kept sending me snippets of, of chapter proposals and so on. And I knew just then that that was the beginning of what could have been a hundred chapters. Cause it was just so hard to codify everything and distill everything down to something that was a manageable number of. Pay- I get your your
1: task. Yeah, man. Talk about time-consuming. Wow.
2: Yeah. Well, and that go-
1: that hey. goes to my
0: my question would be, you know, you look at that art of rush book and the and the size and scope of it. How much time did that take to gather all that s- stuff, and where did it all come
2: from, Hugh? Yeah, that was m- months because some of it wasn't readily. You know, I had to you know get things out of storage in Toronto and things out of storage here after having moved from Toronto so it was a lot of it was location um, apart from you know making it more than just a, a, a you know a vanity book of of images I wanted there to be some kind of backstory
0: that's what's great about it it's the the backstory is fantastic with all that yeah Yeah. Stephen was very helpful and not to interrupt you but I think that was the thing that was the most surprising to me I expected the book to be great and, and it is and I expected the, the 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 visual experience to be amazing, and you know, and I was excited to see all the stuff I'd never seen before, but the story supporting all the visuals, I didn't expect that, you know, and, and the detail of it, and uh, just all of the elements of the that that did surprise me, and that's what made that's what made it so great.
2: Stephen pulled that out of me uh, brilliantly, <laughs> partly because at that point before meeting. The the illustrious Andy Wilson from Elevate Entertainment Services, who is is responsible for taking this workaholic hermit out of my normal kind of inner sanctum to where I feel comfortable, you know, and Stephen Humphreys was good at that, too. He just Mm. he just made the process of talking about the book really, really, really fun. That's great. So
0: at the top of the podcast, I mentioned, you know, 2022 is a year of anniversaries, um, which I can almost imagine every year is in some ways for, for your work. But when you talk about Rush, so 10-year anniversary 2012, Clockwork Angels, 20-year anniversary 20, uh, 2002, Vapor Trails, and then you look down to 35 years, um, 1987, Hold Your Fire, and 40 years, nineteen eighty two signals. So Signals, Hold Your Fire, Vapor Trails, and Clockwork Angels. You know, if you want to kick one of those off, Mark, yeah. I'd love to hear some backstory on those four album covers.
3: I will actually kick this off by talking about Clockwork Angels, mainly because, well, for many reasons. One, you know, it's the final rush album. In my opinion, also one of their strongest. Um what a way to a career and um Mm -hmm. and and not only end their career i mean the album itself ends with a song uh, probably the most beautiful song rush ever wrote called the garden which says really everything neil ever needed to say i mean what what a coda you know like what a way to basically put uh, a bow on a on a wonderful perfect career i mean I know that, you know, perhaps Getty and Alex weren't ready for everything to end, but as a Rush fan, I certainly didn't want it to end. But at the same time, I look back, I hear that song, I, I tear up. I mean, just, just beautiful, just beautiful in every way. And that album, they rock so hard on that album. And I, that's the, the thing about Rush that I think separates them from every other prog band is that they rock. Um, they never stop. Yes, they
0: rocking. do. Yeah.
3: And, um, you know, like I, I've never been a bit. I'm not a big Genesis fan. I'm not a big uh, Gentle Giant fan or Super Tramp or King Crimson. I mean, I appreciate all those bands for sure. But r- the thing about Rush was that Rush never forgot how to rock. And uh, they certainly bring it. Uh, I mean, Headlong Flight. Holy cow. I mean, it's like one of the most incredible songs. And. Hugh's artwork accompanying all of these songs is just so imaginative and beautiful and really evoked, um, really allowed me as an art director and editor on the Clockwork Lives uh, graphic novel, uh, a real chance to kind of grow that universe, the, the entire Clockwork universe, because Hugh had set the template. Um, you know, we knew where we could go.
2: I will say that that was an album that I knew just listening to the way the band was talking about it. The fact that they had written two songs brought up to Believe and Caravan very early on and oddly admitted to the fact that they were kind of enjoying playing out, playing on the road, because that was a diminishing Concept for them, they were happy to have be home with family. It used to be nine months of the year touring, maybe a few months of the year with family. That had in, inverted itself. Um, but not being ready to put the album out, they did the time, the Time Machine tour, you know, appropriately named Time Machine, so that they could take more time to write the album. That was the the gift, the the silver lining for me because they were gone for another. Well, 22 months or something? It was a long period of time. Yeah. And I kept corresponding with Neil during that period of time and I could see just because it was a co-authored book with, with Kevin and I could feel the passion from Neil. I mean, I always did have great conversations with him about the arc of each album. You know, the themes, sometimes not. Sometimes I was given a title like Moving Pictures and it was evident that what that pun was going to be. I knew right away... Uh, how uh, Fellini would have handled that, (laughs) that moment, you know, (laughs) but this particular series of conversations with Neil was very collaborative and he was very clear on the, the, the details of the story, which was super helpful, helpful to me. But most bands give you about six weeks to work on an album. If you're lucky, Rush always gave me about four to six months. This time they gave me two years. So I I think it was evident in the final production all the way from David Hamilton to, I guess, the packaging. It just it worked beautifully and was a great time for them to do their opus. Hmm. I think what's interesting
0: about these four records, anniversary year of this year for Rush, is they all four have an interesting kind of story to them. You know, with um, Clockwork being the last album, Vapor Trails being that return album after Neil, you know, uh, kind of going off for a while. And then hold your fire, being kind of the end of the whole um, keyboard phase in the '80s, and Signals really being kind of the real beginning of that phase. But I'd like to dial back to Signals, 40 years. I'd lo- I just want to hear the backstory of how that album cover came to be. And the interesting thing is, is that the the dog, the Dalmatian, continues to appear over the years yeah. in other various ways, which <laughs> I love. Um, But Talk to us about that album cover and the concept and how it came together some 40 years ago for Signals.
2: Neil never failed to um, spoil me with great titles, great visual turns of phrase. I have to admit, Signals was one of those slightly intimidating singular words that was so vast in in possible um, solutions, visual solutions that We went down a lot of cul-de-sacs in this pursuit of the right image. We played around with Tesla and Marconi concepts, you know, radio waves. We were even going to bring um, medical technicians into the studio in Montreal and have them all wired up for an electroencephalogram reading of their brainwave patterns during a particular passage of music. And we would exhibit those brainwave patterns as three graphs on the front cover to show what Alex Getty and Neil were feeling in that moment. It was was us being super clever until the police came along with synchronicity with three stripes of paint on the front cover, which kind of robbed our thunder. So quite a bit of time passed, and I just suddenly was driving on Yorkville. I looked at the fire station on Yorkville, uh, and I thought, you know, subdivisions, fire hydrants, green lawns, it all just seemed... And I was very into David Lynch at the time, you know, um, Twin Peaks and that kind of creepy undercurrent that you you associate with. You know, it's the dark side of the suburbs, though I did resist putting a severed ear in the lawn.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is a line that, that I've never heard in my life. Just let me say that real quick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <Thank you>. yeah <laughs> took
0: me a while for that to sink
1: in Afraid <laughs> from putting the severed ear in the lawn that's classic yeah might throw that out there this weekend <laughs>
2: but yeah the, the, the glib idea of a dog sniffing the the signal from other dogs from the territorial um, concept of dogs I, I immediately thought of that as being a pretty good and i knew right away the red and the green it would and the black and white dog would be a pretty interesting graphic I do recall Ray Daniels in my studio, one of the few times he was in my studio, hearing my final distilled version of what I thought the cover should be. And he did leave in a bit of a huff and said, "I and to quote, I don't know what the fuck this has to do with rock and roll, and wasn't particularly pleased with the prospect of that cover. Every once in a while, when you're doing a cover like Counterparts and you tell the band, let's just be bravely minimal. Let's just not worry about... Always being rich, like the Hold Your Fire or Test for Echo covers. Let's do something that's graphically challenging and much like beat and discipline were on on the King Crimson projects. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, that were great. Yeah, so yeah. minimalist for sure, yeah. exactly. Um, but yet, displaying kind of a confidence in that minimalism, I I would hope. But again, you stand to be to fail, and you stand. But the the counterpart Nut and Bolt ended up being a really Top-selling T-shirt for the band. So who'd Mm -hmm. have thunk? Anyways, I was a big fan, and it was I was um, grateful to have met him a couple of times. Storm, Thorgerson from Hypnosis, and he and Tiger Press put out books sequentially back in the eighties, and they they were called the Ultimate Album Cover Album Book.
0: Yeah, I've got one of those books.
2: Yeah, I yeah I was grateful when I bought the first one to have been one of four on a page. You know, Mm -hmm. I wasn't ignored. But I wasn't featured on a full page, you know, which is you know, a little disappointing. Um, but it's good to be it's good to be acknowledged. I can make you a copy
0: and put in like you as a, a feature and, and give you mine.
2: If you want. <laughs> <laughs> Where you're all your stuff's first. <laughs> the third book came out and I was delighted to turn the page and find signals by itself, full frame. And it was amazing to me that, that you know, internationally someone somewhere got that glib sense of humor. Needless to say, I wrote a little post-it saying who to thunk and put that into the book and gave it to Ray for his Christmas present that year.
1: <laughs> nice. That's great. Uh, who are your main influences, Hugh? I mean, we talk about, you know, I talk about, oh, I I listened to John Bonham and Steve Gadd and kind of put that together and then formed my own thing. Let's talk about who influenced you as an artist.
2: My father, first and foremost, I, I unearthed some beautiful... Uh, renderings of my mom, Um, they were in a park, so I'm pleased to say I wasn't shocked by any nudity, but he was definitely taken by her form and and drew her beautifully. He was the first person to tell me that lines are a good guide when drawing, but lines, unlike the comic world where lines are really important, when you illustrate with light and shadow, it's all about delineating to what you're making shape out of. And he, he taught me that when I was like six or seven, he was talking to me very early on about drawing and and, and seeing light um, and, and painters like Vermeer do that incredibly well Dolly is an amazing painter right. I loved his surrealism his his way of thinking and, and I don't think I would have naturally migrated I, I did grow up with a with a, an aunt who was a concert pianist and then went on to do her own radio program and she worked from home and I think some of these learned reflexes are part of how you grow watching her at her Underwood typewriter and then going to the piano and writing music and working to a deadline till 5 a.m. in the morning and racing down town in Toronto to CBC radio to do her children's uh, program she wrote for Sesame Street and so on but she also did her own program watching her work from home was part of understanding uh, discipline uh, work ethic but also working free uh, unfettered by the cubicles and the offices and the attending some kind of you know firm so being young and presumptuous and often dumb and 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 just you know you have all the piss and vinegar of being youthful i just assumed that was something you could do and should do so i did those things often backfire I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time throughout my entire career. There was an awful lot of good timing, but it was backed up by what I hope to be some degree of practice and in, you know, talent from having drawn from an early age to just being a workaholic, I think. Um, but Escher as a draftsman, he was brilliant. I thought his oh draftsman. great. Yeah. He was yeah. amazing. I missed seeing a lecture by him. I went to the new school of art for a year just to draw the nude in Toronto. And, he, he was there a year earlier and I missed seeing a lecture by him. Oh, wow. wow. Escher, Vermeer, um, and I had Storm, absolutely Storm. And the fact that he did album covers, that lent to me the whole concept of having a canvas. It was completely lost on me. And I was unaware of the fact that when you did a cover for a band like Rush and eventually like the Aerosmiths and the White Snakes, little did i kind of consider the fact that somebody in sao paulo or tokyo or, or milan will will see the art and might read the liner notes so it was just good to have that free editorial kind of uh, promo you know yeah i wasn't thinking about that and i wasn't sort of steeped in that kind of uh i didn't care about it i didn't even figure it out till much later in my career that 8 million units or 16 million units is is going to be seen by a few people
0: yeah so, I mentioned 35 years ago, Hold Your Fire, 1987, but the one record that came out in 1987 that, uh, you know, uh, probably your most well-known work from that year is Snake," the self-titled release yeah. from 1987. I was thinking about that one specifically, and I think you could almost argue that maybe out of any cover you've done, that cover really represents white snake i mean people know who david coverdeal is and what he looks like but there's been so many different people in that band over the years but i would you'd be hard pressed to to find people i think that know who white snake is i think that they think of that cover i don't think they think of the a picture mm-hmm. of the band or they think of the but that artwork was so prevalent during the year of 1987 in the music video space, when they went out on tour, they, you know, even when we talked to Rudy Sarzo, he talked about the stage design being very much utilizing your artwork, not just that album, but the albums that, that followed there that you did. But take us back to 1987 White Snake. how that came to be and how your, your
2: uh, work with David Coverdale uh, came to be. To that unwitting um, staying power of, of a given piece of art, the man pushing the star away—the the evil red star of the Federation—the hero from Twenty One Twelve was never meant to be, True. you know, the band right. thumbprint or brand, but it became such. Same thing with White Snake. Um, I met—I was working with Spencer Proffer, who at the time was working with a band called Kick Axe, and he came to Toronto. I met with him at CBS, and he said, "You should come down and do. You work on some." projects and I ended up staying in a nice house for six weeks and did a painting for his band Isle of Man and also quiet riot and that stay was pretty enticing <clears throat> intoxicating having the the use of a house a nice house um, a convertible Mustang you know just given to me while I stayed there, I I could easily see that becoming a new, a new frontier. Yeah. I didn't dare to think of leaving Toronto, you know, until he said, why are you going? He he brought credence to the line in the Eagles song, you can check in, but you can never leave. And that sort of happened. My Weeks turned into 16 years, but very quickly, he, he introduced me to his former partner, Trudy Green, who was managing all kinds of interesting artists at the time. Not the least of which was David Coverdale and, and Whitesnake. So I met David at Le Mondrian Hotel. He put up some band tracks in his hotel room. And I was, you know, very I didn't realize at the time how very lucky I was, especially considering how smitten my wife was with David after finally discovering him. But you know, him with a, a towel on his head, fresh from the shower and a bathrobe. I got three performances from him just in the room you know just him singing into a hairbrush i hope you were going to say singing into a hairbrush. <laughs> what songs did he sing do you remember the song <laughs> well i was blown away and the guy's types were just magnificent i just thought holy shit this guy you yeah, can belt it up yeah he was a little bit um, you know at the time he had had, had some uh node sur- surgery done and he was a little bit anxious about whether or not you know it was going to affect his singing, why he chose me to to adjudicate whether that had, had impacted his <laughs> voice or not, I don't know. But I'm glad he did. And when you hear him speak, he's a bit like Richard Burton. He's got that that um, terribly British kind of thing, and, and a deep voice. So right away I just associated David with heraldry and all things Britain. And it was a, a no-brainer that we would do something like a coat of arms or something that would represent his adorable pomp. <laughs> you know, he was always so so that, very much that way. Even so, when I met him and Jimmy Page when they did their their project together, Jimmy was in torn torn shorts uh, and and he had sand on his feet from having just come in f- from playing uh, soccer on the beach at David's Miami Beach house. David walked in with a full-length black smoking jacket and telling us that lunch was served you know so some contrast there anyways long story short it struck me very readily that some heraldry you know a medallion or something and there you have it and so i i embarked on doing a painting based on the uberus sort of the uh, i don't think i ended up having the snake eating its tail like we did on snakes and arrows with neil but that is that correct pronunciation yeah Ouroboros, yeah. Ouroboros, yeah. you know I, I i was inspired by that so it was symbolism so you know the painting came from that so at the time that you worked on the
0: white snake record i mean to be fair i mean they they had had that slighted in album that was pretty popular yep. and but really i mean they were nowhere near what they became after this 1987 record came out so I guess if you can, if you can remember that time, like in, in your head was like, oh, it's another project. It's who? White Snake? Okay, cool. Or, or were you like, you know, could you sense anything special about it or, or not? You know,
2: I had already been in LA. And so that was kind of calling. I did go back to Toronto. My pencil sketch for that cover was done in Toronto. I faxed it down to uh, Geffen and to David and to Trudy Green. They immediately got it. So we were still... uh, Do you still have that fax, by the way? I have the sketch, the pencil sketch, yeah. Oh, man, I'd love to see that. Very cool, yeah. So did I think something was uh, looming? I could have only hoped it was. I never presumed it was. I never, Mm -hmm. you know, but I I privately hoped it would. Because, you know, uh, in that same period of time, or prior to that, I was uh, asked by Bob Ezrin, who had just come off a 22-month, stint with Pink Floyd for The Wall and he invited me down to Nimbus 9 studios in Yorkville in Toronto and he he talked a bit about his new band that he had been working with called The Kings and they had a great summer hit called Switch into Glide and it was just a great summer song and the band was really they were great guys but he fired up what he had been working on in London and I didn't know who they were it sounded very different than anything any Floyd I'd ever heard but a couple of songs in, I looked to him, I said, this is really good. This this is, should do really well. Having no clue, it was the wall that he had mm-hmm. been working on. He sent me down because he was in a hurry to get a cover. So I did a very quick calligraphic rendering of the word Kings, went down to L.A., stayed there for a few days at the Marquee, which is also kind of a, a historic hotspot for bands to stay. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Nice place. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Love it. But uh, going down the second time, uh, going to Asylum, you know, where, where I knew all the, the Eagles, you know, it was kind of early, early Geffen days. Mm-hmm. And going that evening with the secretary from that company to see Linda Ronstadt and Little Feet at the Forum. Nice. And wow. just, yeah, just, just having the experience of being in L.A. It was starting to, to seep osmotically into me. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted more and more to be there. So. Now, now, now. Hold on. on the Geffen stuff. I have a
0: couple of questions. So, obviously, you know, looking back on those years with the White Snake stuff and Aerosmith, get a grip, and all that stuff during that time frame. So, what was? Obviously, you must have been on speed dial for John Kalodner, right? I mean, you were. It seemed like you you were kind of the
2: go to guy, right, during a lot of those years. He was. Yeah. You know, once I met Trudy, and I met David, and, and then finally met John. You know, it's, he's he's not the easiest read when you meet him in person, but somehow we connected. He, he was comfortable saying, let's fly over to Boston to meet with the boys in, in their rehearsal hall in, in for Aerosmith. Let's fly down to see David and Jimmy and so on. Suddenly, it, it was a friendship that was developing, you know. Mm-hmm quirky guy though he'd put a water cup down on his glass desk and when you're finished he would take the glass put it in the trash and wipe the spot where you're, you're <laughs> wow yeah okay well yeah. you know i i love the guy whatever he had remarkable ears um he was one of the few a and r people that was welcome in the studio by by bands most bands especially rush there was a big and you are kind of vibe from rush when anybody from the record label would come in, he, he was very mm-hmm. he was very welcome, and he was often right. You know, um, I've heard it said many times that you know bands who are told by A and R, I'm not sure about that third song. Most bands would say, "Well, we we fucking are," you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. If you listen to John, you're more often than not he's he was right. But with Sammy Hagar, White Snake, Aerosmith, um, a few other bands, like Black and Blue was on their label. And then they had two A&R people, um, Tom yeah. Zuta. Tom one? Zuta, yeah. Yeah. I never crossed the hallway to his office, but I must say I was curious. But yeah, that, that, <laughs> re- that relationship with, with yeah. John was fabulous. And he, he set the pace. I mean, mm-hmm. on the strength of doing some of those more iconic and, and high, high-end bands, then I started hearing from, you know, Meatloaf and Stray Cats and, John Bon Jovi personally inviting me over to New York mm-hmm. to, you know, it was, it was a great ride. It was never planned, but it was a, it was a definite pinch me 20, sure. 30 years. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and
0: Mark, I'm going to ask you a question now, because I know in your world and working in the, in the comic space and book world, you know, when you're, when you're putting a book together, I mean, not unlike a record cover, I mean, it's hugely important, right, from a, from a sales standpoint, from a forward-facing standpoint, telling the story, encouraging people, quite frankly, to buy the damn thing, right? So what do you, and when you're in that chair and you're looking for a cover for something, right. what's the process that you've gone through in, in your space over the years, not just working with you, but just in general? Like, what does somebody in your world look for, you know, when they're looking for somebody like a Hugh, for instance?
3: Well, from my, from my standpoint, it's about a number of things. So it has to be, um, it, since it's a cover, it has to be, for lack of a better way of describing it, iconic. It has to be an image that you see and that you get the gist of what is happening in the book immediately. But also something that is just unbel- you know, amazing. Um, something that really stands out from everything else because from you know from what i do we're just one of many books on the stand Uh, same with comics you know we're one of a million comics that are on the stand so you're always trying to find an image that tells the story but tells it in uh, a single moment and tells it Mm -hmm. in such a way that you're like I need to know that story. One of the brilliant things about Hugh uh, from, you know, going all the way back, you know, uh, I, as Hugh knows, Caress Steel is my um, all-time favorite Rush album. I am the weird guy that loves Caress of Steel. Um, but going all the way back to Caress Steel, Hugh knows how to tell a story in a single iconic image. And, and it's... Often a simple image, and to me, that's that is the very um, that's the very height of artistry. Most artists who are starting to become artists will put down a million details um, because that's what you see and that's what you want to reflect. Um, it's the truly great artists that know how to distill it and make it simple.
2: Well, thank you for that. There's also the prevailing realities of, of, you know, you have shelf appeal, whether you're one of a million books in the world or you're one of, a, you know, a thousand albums in, in Tower Records in LA, unless you're front racked, let's start there, you know, back in the days when visibility was important, whether earned or paid for, <laughs> you know. Uh, right, <laughs> sure. Yeah, the, uh, the fact that a cover has shelf appeal is one thing, that should work in and of itself. Eventually, though, when you have a fan base, whether it's a comic book following or a band like Rush, you can then get a little bit impudent and you can get a little bit not flippant, but, but you can dare your fan base to say, that's a fucking nut and bolt. What? You know, what's the deal? You know, some people would probably feel ripped off and incensed. Some people would understand minimalism from its simple beauty. But you do take chances once you get a rhythm going, once you get a, a cadence with a band, or I would imagine a, a you know a cult following with a with comic books. You could dare to deviate from the norm, for lack of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mark, I know you got to jump.
0: Thanks again for joining us, guys. Stick on yeah, here because we've got a few more record covers to talk about. Well,
2: I
3: appreciate being on, and uh, and as always, uh, Hugh. You know I love you, man. Right and back. This was yeah. great, and I really appreciate you and all you've done for me as well. Thank you. Yeah, man. Glad to have you here, Mark. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. See
0: ya. Hey, take care. Bye. Bye. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. Moving along there, and it was nice to have Mark on. So, look, looking back on the uh, the anniversary stuff, the one the one uh, segment that we didn't really delve into yet. Well, two really, but 1997. So, 25 years ago three records that really stick out from 97 cryptic writings from megadeth fistful of alice alice cooper mm. and then one that we uh, talked to uh, talked to earlier speaking of a uh, severed ears is here in the now frontier by Queensrÿche. those were yeah. all albums that came out in 1997 so fascinating work on on all of those um i'd love to hear a little more about the kind of the double what do you call it the double gate of the uh of alice
2: cooper the fistful did you hang with alice alice came i went down to la demo came down to shoot alice with me demo safari wonderful photographer he shot shot almost exclusively for the stones and pink floyd for almost a decade when the stones would come to toronto to to rehearse for six weeks at the masonic temple now mtv building yeah he, he's been a long time collaborator and fishing buddy and everything uh, he came down jules sylvester um, reptile rentals he has everything from from elephants to cockroaches and rats for for movies he was a an animal wrangler formerly a, a ranger um, outlawing poachers in africa he's from africa but a wonderful guy. And I called him, I've called him on many occasions for my critters. He brought in this incredible boa and I found three kids that look, you know, more Hispanic because this was all about his live performance at, at at Cabo Wabo um, down in in Hagar's club. That's where that album was recorded. So it just had to have kind of a central American kind of vibe. I went a little further South with, with a Costa Rican doorway and so on, but, we just had Alice leaning against a sea C-stand in the studio, you know, with his cane and uh, makeup. And he was looking down the street with the understanding that he was going to be watching these three kids carrying off the snake. Cause that was his, one of his many um, mascots or elements. Anyways, um, it was lovely to talk to him. He talked a lot about playing golf with Alex and just golf was a, a big topic. He was so well-spoken and su- such a, a gentle cool guy that, you know, he's, he's light years away from his persona on stage when you meet him. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Great guy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he even stayed for the kids carrying the snake. So he was very, very into the session, but that's where that idea came from. It was just to, to play off the, uh, the location for the live recording.
0: Mm. Now it's great. It's a really, I mean, it's a really super cool cover for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Now the, the, the Reich work, Uh, here in the now frontier Uh, that's 25 years ago for that one you know you had mentioned like dolly and some of those influences that that work for the queen's rike stuff definitely invokes um, some of that type of stuff what kind of freedom did the queen's rike give you what was it like working with them because i think some of your cool all of it's cool but some of the most interesting work in some ways that i think that you've done is the queen's Reich stuff is is kind of doesn't get enough credit until you look at it by itself you know like the the other day on on instagram where we posted the oh the one that you you
2: the totem pole
0: me. yeah man and it's just like i've seen that several times you know but when i saw that again i was like man, that is such a striking image you know
2: well that so, anyway that came organically from the fact that they were recording in the northwest and and they did talk a little they talked to me about the history, um, and I forget the name of the tribe, but it's indigenous to the area where big log recording studios were. And, and Chris DeGarmo took me over there and his twin engine beat, is uh, was a Beechcraft, I think it was, um, and we flew over to meet the boys, stayed there for a few days, and I got to watch their process. But it was all kind of based around the Northwest, so the idea of a totem pole with their, their tri reich logo carved in the wood at the top, was kind of a no-brainer um here in the now frontier was just me being me an opportunity to feature severed ears again (laughs) yeah because i'd done the first image of the kids playing ring around the rosie in around sort of a ball jar a glass you know pickling jar with the tri reich logo embossed on the side of the jar and the ear inside the jar that image came first so having kind of a wraparound cover with the it was kind of unwitting, but I'm pleased it had a Dolly-esque feel because what better artist to emulate? Uh, but it wasn't intentional. I do look back on it now with the blue sky and the very yeah. the red earth, the red desert. But it was an occasion to kind of have a receding pers- perspective, probably very much driven by the hypnosis compositional
0: mm-hmm.
2: devices. But yeah, that was, a, that was mostly just taking the word here in the Navran here. Because it was spelled H E A R, and that was their right. that was their grammatic gag, much like euthanasia was Megadeth's mm. g-
0: grammatic gag, you know. So in 1992, there was Revenge by Kiss, and 30 years ago, and also Countdown to Extinction by Megadeth, and I mentioned previously. And 97, 25 years ago, was the uh, another Megadeth, which was Cryptic Writings. You know, just a huge difference between the the approach and the and the look of those record covers. Countdown to Extinction is arguably Megadeth's biggest record of all time.
2: Euthanasia um, was bigger, wasn't it? Was
0: it? Okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I know Symphony of Destruction was their huge, huge song for them. Yeah. That was on it Countdown. Was- I don't remember, but yeah, Euthanasia was big too. Anyway, but, but to my point, Euthanasia and... Extinction being such, the visual of those two record covers is so striking. Was cryptic writings purposely not as striking? Like, what what's the story
2: behind the differences? Cryptic writings was originally called needles and pins. Okay. Immediately, I thought of voodoo. And again, demo and I took a, a, a an exploratory trip to New Orleans and met with Chicken Man, um, who was the voodoo priest at the time. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. We went to a lot of the. The shops that sold the accoutrement for for voodoo, you know, gri gri, yeah, gri gri, all that, yeah. And you know, another another woman who was very knowledgeable about the history of voodoo, and that was where we're headed. I think at the time David was going through some kind of faith shift. I don't know that he found the Lord per se, but I think suddenly the whole thing became a little. Uh, It wasn't like this cover wasn't dark and the imagery that I developed that's never been published for the interior of needles and pins um, was really more, it felt a little bit more like museum presentations of elements, you know, Hmm. they were quite lovely and, you know, well designed pages and so on. And out of nowhere, I get a call after spending all that time and energy and money going down to New Orleans and developing everything. He said, hey, I've decided to change the title. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, sort of me- immediately I thought, oh, well, another project, you know. But then he said, I, I already figured out what I want. You know, I, I like the the renderings, the, the little um, symbols that hobos leave behind at different houses saying the dog is dangerous here. Or they will they'll give you symbols that would say they'll let you sleep on the porch or they'll serve you soup. There are symbols specifically telling other transients and so on you know the state of that household and they would hmm. herbs and, and the areas with chalk hmm. so those symbols ended up becoming the cryptic writings on that cover
0: okay so how about countdown to extinction i i, I want to hear the story behind that and and this the whole i love that you told me previously the story behind the the guy's
2: feet that are kind of dangling, if you will. Looks yeah, like that's yeah. that's more of a technical uh, solution. Um, I had no real guidance in terms of story or arc. Or anything. The, the very idea of countdown, you know, launching. Uh, I guess I intuitively thought someone could be right. I always love the idea of levitation. I think I used to dream about levitating. So levitating is kind of a, you know, it's just it's just a cool state to be in. So in this instance, there's a bit more anguish <laughs> i mean this guy was very accommodating in terms of his, his expression and everything who's the guy on the cover i guess do you know any story about him yeah, i do i worked with cameron wong who was the assistant to um norman Seif. norman Seif is a psychiatrist from south africa who came to la and started photographing bands like the band that famous black and white photo of the band the shot of carly simon on her knees on uh playing possum
1: gotta love that yeah, that's one of my favorites.
2: Come on now. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Cameron was a true technician. He was really good at what he did. And I used him to to photograph the, the plaque that I created for Bon Jovi. I created the model for Revenge, for Kiss, and then he photographed that. He's very good. And I, I built a miniature set um, for Countdown to Extinction, including the sink and the little prison window and 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 the floor. The floor, I actually had CAD cut out of acrylic, and then I painted it with gunmetal colors and distressed it and so on. And I just thought the idea of someone launching, just lifting off the floor, and I thought, well, he should be looking up. And then when I asked Cameron, do you have any idea who I could get? is really someone who's quite emaciated, really skinny, like, you know, tragically skinny. <laughs> he said, I absolutely know. And his friend's father was a former... Uh, assistant to Jerry Lewis and that's who we got to do the uh, the modeling for this he came in, really nice guy I had a wig, the wig maker from um, the opera in Los Angeles made the, the fringes of gray hair, he had very little hair himself so we could just wig tape that to his temple so he had this really odd wispy gray hair um, just tied kind of a gauze, kind of like a, you know, kind of a, a loin cloth mm-hmm. or the edge. I, I had pre-distressed it and tea stained this loincloth, so he wore that. And he just stood there. I said, look up and just, you can either scream or you can just give me a big yawn. So he didn't scream, but he looked up and he gave me the most anguished looking yawn. And we lit it with light from above and that's how we got it. And I said, now, obviously standing there with his feet straight forward would look kind of stupid. So we sat him on a cafeteria table with the same light source Mm-hmm. And I said, "Let your feet dangle. Let them point down. And we shot his feet separately. And I morphed the feet into the shins wow. later. Mm. So he looked airborne. so that that's how that was created
0: that wow. I mean, that that goes back to the earlier part of the conversation about just, you know album covers kind of, you know, telling us telling a story and making you want to purchase something regardless of what the music is. I feel like that is such a striking album cover. I remember seeing it, you know, um when it was in the stores and knowing who megadeth was and to be fair megadeth had, did have cool album covers they did prior and, mm-hmm. and but they always kind of reminded me a little bit of iron maiden stuff yeah you know which is fine but yeah. this was such a striking image and, and one that i think similar to the comment about white snake or like you know 2112 or whatever you know this one really is uh kind of embedded in your in your head i feel like you see it once you don't forget it
1: and just telling that story, I mean, you went to great lengths to make that happen. You must have had it kind of formulated in your head how that was going to work. Pretty amazing, especially Especially, how many years ago was that? Before you could digitally just, you know. I still have a place yeah. in for creating things, you know. I mean,
2: obviously, layering things in Photoshop is, frankly, it will still arrive at the end result. But somehow, building sets, you know, like the... The subway platform for *Roll the Bones*. That was oh, that was a big frame we built with sandbags of two by twelve boards that were put together with with buttresses, you know, like support beams and so on, lined with black, very thick black uh, vinyl, and filled. We were working in an old brewery where uh, John Scarpati had his studio, and thankfully the floors were concrete and could support this much water. But today I would never have dreamt of. Filling a studio with you know several hundred gallons of water, twelve inches deep, just so I could get a
1: reflection. (laughs) I would. Right, right. Well, that's what I mean. The lengths that you had to go to, especially back then, to make these things come to fruition. Yeah, uh, it's pretty incredible, Hugh. Really is. is.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting too that. And look, I think all of your work is fantastic. Well, you know, for sure. But to me, some of the most interesting work that I think you've done has, has been like, you know, the Eddie character on the on the front of X Factor by Maiden, the things that you built, right? I mean, the things that you've used your hands to, to paint and build and all the conceptual stuff outside of Photoshop uh, in a lot of ways is actually, you know, maybe more intriguing uh, than, than some of the other stuff in some ways. Just
2: That's like saying ever since... Uh photoshop i suck but that's okay um that's not what i said but i think it's
0: i think it's fascinating you know i think photoshop is is you know there's still i don't understand it i don't know how to
1: use it it's the time and the conceptualization and actually doing it and figuring out okay so i need how many gallons of water to pull this shit off right i mean i mean it takes some it takes some thought takes some it's it's quite a process
0: So the last one that I mentioned from 30 years ago was uh, KISS Revenge. Yeah. Um, And on the podcast, we had Bruce Kulick on, who was in the band at that time, and talked to Bruce about that when he was on. But, um, you know, I think that was at a time where, you know, KISS had had the makeup off for a lot of years at that point. And that was actually a pivotal album for KISS. It kind of made people take them seriously again at the time. Yeah. Um, And it was, uh, you know, they went through their, their makeup years and then the 80s thing. And heading into the '90s with the grunge thing going uh, full steam, it's kind of interesting that Kiss released what was one of their biggest records of all time then, um, in Revenge. So, what was it? I, I've worked with Gene Simmons on stuff over the years. Um, I find Gene to be fascinating and punctual, and I have a lot of respect for him, to be quite honest.
2: And um, I've always been a Kiss fan. The Revenge project. I mean, I had no guidance. I just heard the title. I thought, and I wasn't. My original idea was to have. Four intentionally four houseflies. Uh, you know, obviously that's been a motif that's been on my mind well before Music Buzz podcast. Um, but I was going to have four houseflies encroaching on a spider because obviously the spider and the fly fable is such that the spider wins all the time. So my original cover was going to be surprisingly minimal, and I thought, yeah, they're not going to go for it. I just didn't even present it. You know, four houseflies converging on a on a spider just wouldn't make a, a kiss cover in my view. So I built kind of something that felt kind of aeronautical. It was not really, there was no guidance. It's just, you know, it wasn't to be, it wasn't a nod to war. It wasn't a nod to battle or anything. It was just an angry piece of metal, <laughs> you know?
0: That's fascinating. I think, I think that's whole you know, all of these records have been indelible and they've lasted, they've stood the test of time, which is interesting because I think one could argue like we did at the top of the call is that there's no question that the music is the driving force and without good music you know um you know you don't have anything right but at the end of the day it is interesting that we're not just looking back when we're talking to you and saying hey you know congratulations this is the anniversary year for this album and this album most of the ones we talked about quite frankly are still relevant today whether it's 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 35 or 25 or whatever it is, 10, every album we talked about is still um, being listened to at, at mass level. There, there are artists that are still selling selling out shows and also artists that are still using their artwork, on, your artwork, um, on their merchandise and selling their brand. For you as the person that creates the artwork, what is that like you're the only person that I know, anyway, that you walk around a concert and you see people wearing a T-shirt. It's like I did that. I did that. I did that. What is the, was that a gratifying feeling? Is it strange for you to be like I did that in my my house? And you know well, what I
2: mean? <laughs> yeah. The time that I first really noticed it because again, I don't I don't look for that kind of adulation and I don't look, you know, I, I, it was kind of a feedbackless process being in this career. Yeah, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. Um, after I did the retro retroactive cover. He took time to call me from the Caribbean on holiday with his family. So every once in a while people will surprise you with their you know their gratitude and their kindness. Um, Neil always called, Neil Peart always called. A lot of times no news is good news, and that's how it works. You do a cover. It's, you know it, it worked for the band and the best testament to that is repeat business. so you have your Megadeths and your Queen's rights and your dream theaters and so on. You, you know you're doing, you're onto something, you know, you're, you're developing a good relationship with these people when you get to do it every 24 months when they're back in the studio. So that's that's gratifying on that's great. a lot of levels, yeah.
0: Awesome. This has been fun. Yeah. yeah. Really cool. I'm, I, yeah, I'm glad Mark could join us and, and have a different, uh, yeah you know, somebody else on. It's kind of fun. It's different. But uh, hopefully it's been enjoyable for you. And we'll have to do this again um, and talk about a, a, you know, a, a whole other slate of, of records for sure.